So I'm waking up on Saturday morning, and my wife turns to me and says, so how'd you sleep? And I said, honestly, lousy. I slept terribly. Why, she says. Well, I said, I had a nightmare, and it just really, it wrecked me. And she said, what happened? I said, well, I was going to this wedding, and it was a wedding off of campus, and I I was driving through intense, crazy traffic, and I began to get really scared that I was gonna miss this wedding. And I finally get there in time, and I have to park way out in the parking lot, and then I have to run, literally run, to get to the building where the wedding is taking place. And I've never been in this building before. And I don't know my way around. And I, go, I keep going into one room and then a next room, and it always seems like just beyond, in the room beyond, there are voices like that's where the wedding is taking place. And then I go to these doors, and I turn the handles, and I can't get them open. And I have to bang my shoulder against it. And finally, I break into the place where the wedding is happening, and it is time for the wedding to start. And everybody is assembled in place. And I quickly slip into my place, and I notice that everybody's out of order. That the women aren't standing where the women are supposed to be, and the men aren't standing where the men are supposed to be. And and I'm really confused. And And I look at my wedding book, and I can't read it. I can't even see it. I realize I've got it upside down, so I turn it up the other way around, and I'm still struggling to read what's in the wedding book. And I'm feeling so anxious because I know the bride's name is Abby, and my wedding book says that her name is York. And I'm really confused. And the whole thing has just got my heart racing. It's not working. It's not working. And then I wake myself up. It was just a bad dream. Do any of you ever have a stress dream? Because that is exactly what that was. Uh, It was just a projection in a sense of a whole different set of other wayfinding struggles that I was feeling at this particular time of my life. And, And because the subject of stress or anxiety and the pressures of life are so common to so many of us, I am really glad that we have the opportunity today to look at one of the most fascinating stories in the Bible. And if you're just joining us for the very first time, we're in this series of of studies in the book of Daniel we're calling Lionheart. We're looking at the example of an individual who managed to live with remarkable clarity and courage in the midst of of a very demanding, stress-producing, and fragmenting kind of environment, ancient Babylon. And today we're going to have an opportunity to look at how that particular figure managed the stress and the anxiety of his life and how another person in the same storyline also managed that kind of stress. And you're going to have an opportunity to choose between these two approaches to handling the stress and the strain of life that you want to take out with you and and try in your own personal journey. The first of the approaches I'm going to call the Nebuchadnezzar approach, uh, or the Neb approach for short. Uh, That's a mouthful to say Nebuchadnezzar, but you should know something about Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was an individual who lived some 600 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, and who was the lead guy in one of the most massive and sophisticated empires the world has ever known. 
I know we have this opinion that we're the latest and the greatest and nobody will ever be as good as we are. Nobody has ever been as impressive as we are. I'm telling you, if you knew more about Babylon, the ancient empire of Babylon, you might rethink that. Babylon was an extraordinary nation, and under Nebuchadnezzar, it expanded its borders further than ever before. During the 40 years that he led this incredible superpower, as it was in the ancient world, uh, Nebuchadnezzar pushed the boundaries all the way out to every ocean and sea and all the way far north and south as anybody ever had. And he, he imposed a tributary system and a trade system in this ancient world that resulted in, in the equivalent of trillions of dollars pouring into Babylon's national treasury. With this treasury, uh, Nebuchadnezzar embarked upon a massive set of public works, unlike a- anything ever seen in human history before. One of the things he did was, was built a, an incredible um, bridge that spanned the entire Euphrates River uh, with a, a feat of engineering never before accomplished. Uh, he embarked upon the construction of something like 54 temples to the various Babylonian gods. He built scores of magnificent palaces. They've dug uh, these up. They've dug up the foundations of some of these palaces in modern-day Iraq and, and, and seen just how vast and amazing these constructions were. And Nebuchadnezzar also constructed the very first skyscrapers in the world. They called them ziggurats. This is what one of them looked like. Uh, And and one of the ziggurats that Nebuchadnezzar had built was 65 stories high. In the age before rebar, concrete, steel construction, cranes, he built a 65-story skyscraper. Are you getting the picture? Nebuchadnezzar was not a slouch. Nebuchadnezzar was a player. Nebuchadnezzar could run any corporation probably any country in the world today. Nebuchadnezzar uh, was the Babylonian equivalent of a scratch golfer. He ran with the stallions. But as the old saying goes, sometimes heavy is the head that wears the crown. And that is what we discover in Daniel chapter 2. And I hope you've had a chance to read through that chapter, or will this afternoon. I hope you'll read Daniel chapter 3. That's our lesson for next week. Uh, during this coming week. But we read in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 29 that as Nebuchadnezzar lay in bed one night, his mind turned to things to come. His mind became preoccupied with what was to come. Now, we don't know exactly what it was that Nebuchadnezzar was thinking about. We can hazard uh, a guess. We know that there would have been incredible pressures upon the leader of a major nation state like this. Uh, but we can also imagine it could equally have been part of his experience to worry about the kinds of things that a lot of us worry about in the night sometimes, that, that, that form our, our stress dreams at times. You know, how, how am I going to pay those bills? I mean, how will I ever cover uh, all of the needs that our household or our business or our country uh, has? How will I solve that problem that's haunting me uh, at work or in my family's life? Which way should I go on this important decision that I need to make? Or how do I recover from that really bad decision that I made back over here? What should I do about this child or this particular grandchild's stuff. 
Uh, and will I ever even find true love uh, for myself? Will I get into the college of my choice? Will, will my marriage survive this incredible wilderness season? Will this illness actually be the beginning of the end for me? Should I check my parents into that senior care facility? Should I get ready to go in myself? Will the bears ever win again? (laughs) These are the things that will keep you up at night. So again, we we don't know exactly what it was that haunted him, but, but we know that he was very likely plagued with the same kinds of pressures and concerns from the sublime ones to the ridiculous ones that stress all of us out. All of us, in some level, in some way, worry about things to come. We worry about things to come. So the question I want to pose just to get us going on the topic is how did he deal with that? This was not the first difficult night's sleep that he'd had before. So how did Nebuchadnezzar uh, deal with the stress of in his life? As I look at this story from Daniel chapter 2, it's clear to me that he utilized a three-point approach to managing stress. So I want to unpack that for us and see what we learn from that. The Bible says that in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. Now we get no indication in the storyline that, uh, that when this was going on for him, he woke up his wife and, and talked about it. We get no indication that he uh, prayed to his gods uh, uh, about the concern. Uh, We get no information about him sort of rolling out of bed and and reading some sacred texts for comfort or getting a warm glass of milk. We get no detail about that. The picture we have is of somebody simply tossing and turning in the night all alone. I don't know whether you've ever done that. I don't know whether you've ever found yourself sleepless and solo, just carrying the burden to yourself, somehow unable to bring somebody else in, or not even having somebody else to bring in to what you were worrying about. Then the second thing that Nebuchadnezzar does here, maybe you can relate to this too, Daniel 2 and verse 2 says, so the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. Presumably the next day, uh, He decides, I do need to talk to somebody about this. And so he calls in the wise men of ancient Babylon, the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers, uh, to, to interpret this to him. And the text goes on and says, when they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. And the, and the wise men who are there are thrilled to hear this because this is their business. And they say, well, okay, king, tell us what you dreamed and we'll tell you what it means. And then there's this bizarre exchange because the king says, no, here, here's what we're gonna do. You're gonna tell me what I dreamed about. And if you can't tell me what I've dreamed about, I'm taking off your heads. Now, I read this for the first time, and I'm thinking, wow, that is a wacky, wacky thing to do. I mean, if he really wants to get help, why doesn't he tell these guys what he dreamed so they can help him interpret it? And then it hit me. Nebuchadnezzar does not really trust these guys. 
He does not think they actually know how to do their jobs. And, 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 and so what he does after tossing and turning alone is he sort of just half-heartedly seeks help from people he does not really trust. That's the second approach to managing the stress. I th- I'll talk about this, but I'm not really gonna go all the way in with anybody. I'm gonna talk to, to people I'm not sure I trust. Now, there's a reason why he doesn't trust them. You gotta understand that alongside building palaces and bridges, and, and uh, one of the other things the Babylonians did was they built this incredible armada of ships. They had the, this huge fleet of trade and warships. Uh, so in some cases, um, uh, these ships that were manned by 90 uh, rower uh, teams. So these things just cut through the water at a ferocious speed. Um, but in addition to that, one of the other major industries of Babylon was dream interpretation. You wouldn't have known that, but it's true. They had an entire um, industry built up around this with books and um, and experts and uh, clubs and societies around dream interpretation. And these books that they had had marked out just about every conceivable image or symbol that you might imagine having in a dream. And then they had, had uh, linked to each of those symbols a set of potential interpretations for those dreams, for those symbols. And the beauty of it was that if you were a dream interpreter, you were one of these astrologers, magicians, wise men, sorcerers that we just talked about, depending on who your audience was, you could pick whatever interpretation you wanted that you thought would make them happy. And Nebuchadnezzar knew that. And he was at a place in his life where he frankly did not need a horoscope. He needed some answers. He needed some authority. He needed some some. Uh, authentic interpretation to help him with what he was internally wrestling with. I don't know if you've ever felt that in your own life where you've been in a situation where something was really bugging you and you wanted to know that the people that you were talking with weren't just going to tell you what you wanted to hear. You didn't want them to, 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 to make some kind of general prescription. You wanted authoritative, authentic help with this issue. And so in those situations, sometimes when we're in, we want that kind of help, we really put some burden on the other person to to sort of build our confidence in their credibility. I think this happens often in marriages. You know, we think to ourselves, I'm I'm kind of upset. Honey, you seem kind of upset. Well, I am. What's it about? Well, you should know. (laughs) I should know? Oh, yeah, you should know. We've been married long enough. You should know what I'm mad about or what I'm upset about. Um, this happens in our marriages sometimes. Uh, it goes both ways, men and women. We kind of expect the other to kind of know who, who we are, what's going on inside of us. So, so Nebuchadnezzar is not interested in somebody who just dances around the subject and is going to feed him some kind of a platitude. He, he really wants somebody who discerns the truth, who's got an ability to look inside and understand and anticipate what's going on. And when those people don't deliver on that, and we experience this ourselves sometimes, uh, Nebuchadnezzar employs the third and final stress management technique that, that is not unusual even for us today, and that is what I simply call rage therapy. 
rage therapy. The Bible says that the failure of the counselors to give him the answer he sought, I quote, made the king so angry and furious, we had to have two anger words there, that's how mad he was, that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. And actually, if you go back and read chapter two, you know that he's not just ordering the execution of the people in front of him in the, in the hearing chamber, he's ordering the slaughter of everybody in the business and the detail of the text says, the destruction of their houses. He is mad, right? When he goes into rage therapy, it's like all the way. It's all the way. Now, it feels good to vent a little stress sometimes. You know, who of us hasn't pounded the wall or shouted or let out some very expressive language at some moment when we're under tremendous stress. I know that there have been times with, with the blade of my words or my glare or my secret thoughts, you know, I have chopped off a few heads. Maybe, maybe you have too. Um, but there is something about this approach to, to anxiety and stress management that, that I'm not sure is, is the most constructive way to be processing these things. You know, we toss and turn in the, in the night. We half-heartedly talk to a few people we're not so sure are, are going to help us much. And, and we vent it with a little execution therapy every now and then. But how is that working for us? You know, how does that really work for us? I'm not sure it's worked well for me, which is one of the reasons why I'm, I'm fascinated by this alternative approach that I see in the pattern of God's servant Daniel. And I want to, would you like to know how Daniel managed stress? Would you? Good, I'm glad you asked, because I'm going to tell you anyway. The, there, there are several things we notice about Daniel's strategy. Uh, it's first of all important just to recognize that Daniel understood what stress was about too. Okay, I mean, just if you weren't here last week, Daniel had been, he was a teenager. He was minding his own business. He was just going through life when all of a sudden this foreign army comes sweeping into his, into his, uh, his culture and, they, and, and they, into his town. And suddenly they're slaughtering the neighbors and, uh, and uh, they're, they're burning everything and, and pillaging and raping and, and worse. And they, and they bind Daniel up and they march him off on a slave train from, from Israel all the way out to, to Babylon. And then they force him into this whole reprogramming exercise, this indoctrination camp. Uh, and, and, and they try and change his diet and they, and they give him a whole new name. They won't even call him Daniel anymore. They call him Belteshazzar, which is the name of this pagan god that they serve. And, and he's just, he's in this incredibly alien, refugee kind of situation in life. Life, in, in dire circumstances. And, and then, because he's part of the wise men trainee program, guess who is also going to be executed very shortly because of the king's anger? Daniel. Daniel is also under tremendous stress at this particular moment. So, how does he handle his worries about the future, which were not inconsiderable? Well, first of all, the Bible says that Daniel went to Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, and he asked, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? 
Now, let me just observe, this is a fascinating thing that he does here because he doesn't just kind of toss and turn alone. He doesn't just wig out on the news that he's under a death sentence. Daniel, in this moment, goes and deliberately seeks out one seasoned person to help him identify the specific source of the stress. Is that your pattern? When the worry cloud is swirling all around you and it just feels like you, you know, everything's going wrong and it's all falling apart, it's gonna be terrible ahead, is it your pattern to find one person and try and boil it down with the help of that one wise person to the kernel, to, to the core issue? You know, I was just thinking, just back to my stress stream this past Friday night, you know. I, I, I talked this out a little bit with my wife in the morning. I know where that was coming from now. I, I know what the particular stressor was. Um, do you have somebody that you can talk? This is what wives and husbands and best friends and pastors and counselors and good bosses and coaches and parents, this is what they're for to be the person you can go to and figure out what at the core is the particular problem. What is it? Because until you find the, the, the one or two specific issues you can focus on, it's very hard to solve the problem. It's just a cloud of problem that is always beyond our grasp. So that's the first thing Daniel does that I think is worth emulating. Secondly, you notice that unlike Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel doesn't uh, go out to a bunch of people he doesn't really trust and, and just share a little bit of what's going on. He goes to a group of people he very much trusts and shares everything that's going on. The Bible says that then Daniel returned to his house and he explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He actively shares the particular problem that he has, that they have, with friends in the faith. Uh, he finds his small group. He goes to his fellowship. He locates his stretcher bearers in life, and he says, guys, I gotta tell you everything that I know and that I'm feeling, and brings them into that. Do you have a circle like that in your life? Have you got a, a group of confidants like this to whom you could tell anything? You could share the ugly, the difficult, the scary, you could just be safe with them. Have you got a circle like that? Uh, if you don't, help, let us help you as, as a church family to find that. Uh, talk to one of the pastoral staff about um, connecting with such a group. We'll help you start uh, such a group. Uh, some people that can be there for you and you for them in a stressful time. Thirdly, Daniel doesn't just meet with this group of people and vent. Daniel, we are told, asks his friends to pray with him about the problem. Now, if you read the text, Daniel chapter two, then you know a little bit more about the detail. You know that when uh, Nebuchadnezzar first uh, calls in all of these wise people to solve the issue and tells them that they need to guess the dream, uh, they look at him as if he's absolutely insane. They tell him that it's actually impossible, humanly speaking, to do what he's asking since, and I quote, not a man on earth can know the dreams of another person. Only the gods, they said, could possibly help you, but they do not live among men. Shorthand for, they do not care, actually. Now, Daniel, 
on the other hand, knows that these guys are wrong on two counts. Although he lives 600 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, when God will actually live among men and women, um, Daniel already understands the heart of God, the one true God, and he knows that this one true God actually does care. He is actually quite acquainted with the details of people's lives, with their innermost thoughts and their needs, and that he not only can, but often does choose to give human beings transcendent capacity to conquer the sources of stress and anxiety in their life. God can, for example, renew that relationship that's haunting you. He can do that. He can work with you to renew that relationship. He can open doors that appear closed to you today. He can supply you with a second wind, with the strength that you need to handle whatever it is that requires strength. He can fill you with piercing insight. God, the scriptures make clear, wants to do those things. He is like a good shepherd. He is like a great physician. He is the lover of your soul and your life, all of your life, the details of your life. So very often, the conduit through which God pours his power, his problem-solving capacity, is through prayer. Prayer is the door in the labyrinth you're running through that, it, that if you open it, leads to the place where his power and his help can come. And so I quote the scriptures again here. Daniel urged his friends to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Go home today and read Philippians 4, verses 10 and following, which underline the same idea that when we're stressed, we need to present to God our prayers and petitions and, and to do so trusting in him and the peace of Christ, we're told, will be with us. And so this is something else to take with us today because having committed these matters to God in prayer, Daniel, fourthly, trusts God to act. He trusts God to act. He does everything he, he can, humanly speaking, and then he literally goes to sleep. Contrast the sleeplessness of Nebuchadnezzar with the trusting sleep of Daniel in this story. It's really amazing. Sometimes I think God just wants us to go to bed. Now, there are other times I think God wants us to take action. I think he calls us not to just slouch and, uh, and, and do nothing. There are times when God says, don't just sit there, do something. But there are times when God says, uh, don't just do something, but sit there. In fact, go to bed and trust me to be at work for your good. Uh, it's interesting to note when we look at the order of creation in Genesis, um, chapter one and two, um, we're told that, that, the, that the nature of creation is, is the, and there was evening and there was morning, and there was evening and there was morning. And the idea is that while we're sleeping, God is working. That is the foundation of our lives, that God works even when we sleep. And so we have the freedom sometimes just to let go 
and let God. And I think there are times when he wants us to do that because he wants to make it abundantly clear to us that it's not all up to our ingenuity and our energy. That, that he is the sovereign God at, at work for good in this world. And it's not all up to us. And so Daniel goes to bed. And, and the Bible records, and I quote, that during the night, the mystery of the king's dream was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Have you ever had a vision? Have you ever been given the solution to a problem or a pathway of approaching something that you had never seen before in a vision from God? Maybe it was literally in a dream that that it got presented to you. Uh, Maybe it was uh, a message that you heard, a lecture, a sermon that just put everything in perspective for you and you said, aha, that's what I need to do. That is the way to go. Maybe it was a song you heard that shifted things into focus for you. Maybe you were just driving along someplace when the idea popped into your head and you felt this impulse to do this or to say that. Uh, Maybe you were uh, in the shower and you were scrubbing your head and all of a sudden that thing you'd been worrying about and and all knotted up over, you saw the solution. You you knew what was going to be the wise thing to do. Sometimes when this happens to us and these visions or these ideas come to us, we just push them away. We think, ah, that was just a a wild thought. We think, ah, it must have been the spaghetti sauce from last night. That wasn't just the spaghetti sauce. That was God answering your prayers. That was God speaking to you, offering you a pathway, an idea, a manner of going forward. And I think this, what makes this so interesting, this story here, is that the fifth thing you see Daniel doing in in handling the stress here is he actively responds to the leading of God he's given. He doesn't just kind of have the dream and go, ooh, that's wacky and weird. Yeah, I'll think about that as I'm leaving town. You know, Daniel does just the opposite. At a time when most of Babylon's wise men were were literally trying to get themselves a ticket out of town before the execution squad showed up, uh, Daniel does the opposite. Listen to what the text says. Uh, Verse 24, chapter 2. Daniel went to Arioch. Who's Who's Arioch? We met him a minute ago. He's the commander of the king's army, but we're told a little bit more detail in verse 24. Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon. Daniel goes to the guy with the black hood and the great big axe. He goes right up to him, we're told, and he says to him, take me to the king and I will interpret the dream for him. And that's exactly what happens. He's taken into the court of of this very angry king, and Daniel describes exactly what the dream was and what it means. And we'll get back to that next week, so come on back, it's juicy stuff, okay? (laughs) The big idea I wanna encourage us to focus on today is that from Daniel's risky obedience to the dream's vision, to the calling he was given, to go to the king, come a whole cascade of wonderful blessings. Uh, The first and most obvious one is that it leads to Daniel and his friends uh, saving their necks. Uh, And even beyond that, it leads to all of those other families of the wise men and astrologers and sorcerers and so forth having their lives spared. 
Uh, it leads to the release of at least one source of haunting worry for the leader of the greatest empire in the world at this particular moment. It allows him to clarify his thinking and go on leading in a, in a, in a different kind of way. It also leads to the elevation of Daniel to a position of even greater influence. At this point, he's just in the executive training program, but because of this encounter, Nebuchadnezzar says, I like you, I've got plans for you, I need you, and he makes him the ruler over the entire province of Babylon. It's a long way from being in the slave trade, right? He's now the leader of the province uh, of Babylon, a portion of the most significant portion of the wider empire. And most importantly, this courageous action to follow the leading of God leads to God's glory. So let me ask you, which approach to stress reduction are you gonna try in the weeks ahead as you deal with the anxieties of your life? Will it be Nebuchadnezzar's? Will you just toss and turn alone in the night and kind of half-heartedly share your concerns with people you're not sure really can help you? Will you indulge in a little execution therapy now and then? Will that be part of your plan? Or will you try and approach it like Daniel? And if the latter, then first, find one wise person who can help you to name the principal source of your stress. Find somebody you can trust and, and talk about what you're, what's boiling for you and see if they can help you identify what the core issue is. Once you've done that, share the concern with a few trusted Christian friends. Uh, make sure that you, that you don't carry this by yourself. Thirdly, ask some faithful people to pray with you and for you over your concern. It'll be available to you right after the service today if you'd like to take advantage of that. Then, once you've done everything that is humanly possible, let go, let God, trust him to act. Somebody once said, when you are stuck between a rock and a hard place, turn to the rock and ask him for help with the hard place. I love that. Turn to the rock and ask him for help with the hard place. But when God starts to help, when he starts to tug at your soul, respond to it. Act on his leading, no matter how risky the vision may be, act on that prompting. And when the problem finally starts to give way to blessing, as every source of stressing truly surrendered to God ultimately will, even before you see the final result, do as Daniel does here. Give glory to God. Give glory to God. Because he's got you, he's working, even when it's still messy, okay? That's something you need to remember, I need to remember. But the truth is, he deserves the glory. So say with Daniel, praise be to the name of God, for wisdom and power are his. And as Daniel's life shows us in spades, God has this fascinating habit of lifting up those who lift up his name. So may it be for you and for me. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the wisdom of your word. We thank you that across the centuries and even the millennia, God, you still speak through your scriptures uh, the truth about life. Help us, Lord, to take something from this passage today and apply it in ways that bring forth blessing and that ultimately bring forth even greater glory for your name. For we pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said.
Amen.